Welcome to the Field Dynamics Podcast. We're here to facilitate inspiring dialogues about the nature of consciousness across disciplines, communities, and practitioners, all with a holistic perspective. From energy healing to somatic therapies, from neuroscience to meditation, we believe the most interesting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines. I'm Christabel. And I'm Keith. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Field Dynamics podcast. Today we are joined by Stephen Forrest. Stephen Forrest is the author of a dozen astrological bestsellers, including the classic The Inner Sky. His work has been translated into a dozen languages. Over the years, he has traveled worldwide teaching his brand of choice-centered evolutionary astrology, which integrates free will, grounded humanistic psychology, and ancient metaphysics. Thousands of people have passed through his astrological apprenticeship program since its inception in 1998. Recently, he has created an online school, the Forest Center for Evolutionary Astrology. Stephen is also the official wizard for Leela, a cell phone app that aims to bring conscious evolutionary astrology to a wider market. He lives in the Anza Borrego Desert of Southern California with his partner, the fine artist Michelle Valborg-Gondos. Of Stephen's work, the musician Sting states that he manages to disarm the skeptic as well as debunk the charlatanism that surrounds popular astrology with language that is as intelligent and cogent as it is poetic. Whilst Rob Bresney, in his popular real astrology column, simply calls him the most brilliant astrologer alive. Firstly, Stephen, welcome. It's an absolute honor and a privilege to have you here with us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. We'd love to hear a little of your personal story today as we get started. How did you get into astrology? You mentioned in your writings that you started off being interested in astronomy rather than astrology, and you went on to achieve your undergraduate degree in religion. What was your path to astrology? What sparked that fire? Well, you're you're quite right. It was looking through telescopes that, that really triggered it. Uh, I, I I was born in 1949, and so I, I was conditioned by the 1950s, 1960s uh, consensual reality, uh, what, we, what we used to call normalcy. <laughs> I say that with a smile now. Uh, so it was all science. It, it was uh, uh, there wasn't much room for metaphysics except for uh, about an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And the rest of the time, it was uh, all, you know, Mr. Science. So I got interested in uh, in amateur astronomy, building telescopes and so on. And I it, here's really the key. It took me a while to articulate this because in the context of that old reality, what I'm about to say sounds completely insane. But looking uh, through the eyepiece of a telescope at galaxies, for example, I, I had the feeling, the same feeling I had when I was looking into the eyes of human beings I loved, that there was a sense of a presence there. It wasn't just uh, hydrogen being fused into helium, you know, and and and, and so on, and, and billions of stars, but but just like we're we're billions of cells and neurons, the the galaxy itself seemed to be alive. 
uh, I, again, in the context of how I grew up, I never could have said that because it sounded so absolutely insane. But it really was the root perception that that led me to begin to think, well, if the universe is alive and living beings try to communicate with each other, maybe the universe has a message for me personally. And next thing I know, I was reading astrology. So that idea of the universe being alive, like you're saying, is was pretty antithetical to the environment that you're growing up in culturally, socially. Has astrology ignited a certain knowledge or deeper understanding of an alive universe? And if so, how does astrology fit into that context of a conscious living universe? It's a it's a fascinating question. And it's uh to answer it, I, I think we have to go back uh minimally 10,000 years, you know, hopefully it won't take that long to answer the question. When I think of the history of astrology, I I think of it unfolding in three stages. And by by far the longest stage, the first stage, the the planets uh, were were gods and goddesses, uh, Jupiter, Venus, and so on. Each culture had different names for them, of course. But the idea that they're, they're actually conscious beings with personalities floating around in the sky, uh, trying to, to guide us and, and uh, kind of shaping our fates. We go sit on top of the pyramid and meditate upon Jupiter and get a message you know, from these gods. And, and so it was a living universe in those days. And then along came uh, what is uh, nowadays laughingly called the Enlightenment, you know, in the 18th century, and darkenment in many ways is a better way to say it, when the life was stripped out of the universe and, and science as it was understood then became the dominant paradigm and everything was just push and shove and mechanical laws. And and uh, the astrologers began to sort of buy into that. And I think what's happening now with the, the, the return of the goddess, the return of consciousness, the, you know, this whole kind of awakening spiritually that's happening on the earth is we're, we're, we're kind of going back in some ways to the old idea that the planets represent gods. But now we've added the idea that these gods exist inside of us, and we have more agency than than the the old astrologers imagined, because they they tended towards fortune telling. The gods would tell you what to do, and uh, nowadays uh, maybe maybe we can take responsibility for ourselves and listen to the gods within, with the focusing help of astrology, so we hear the message more clearly, and uh, working and co-creating the evolution of consciousness with with the planets. So there's 10,000 years of history and 200 words, I guess. <laughs> this is a really rich area in your work, Stephen, this idea of autonomy and the, the non-fatalistic approach um, towards astrology. The seventh principle of astrology, as outlined by you, states that astrology suffers when wedded too closely to any philosophy or religion. Nothing in the system matters except the intensification of self-awareness. And I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, I'm intrigued here to ask, does astrology therefore provide us with a path to self-knowledge? And if so, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of its advantages and disadvantages in this respect. 
Yes, yes. I, I think you correctly anticipate my answer. You know, uh, yes, <laughs> astrology uh, definitely facilitates the path. Um, and thinking in terms of any negative dimensions to astrology, there was uh, like uh, in my first book, The Inner Sky, the, the last chapter was uh, one that I entitled The Map is Not the Territory. It was actually a phrase I saw on a literal hiking map that, that I had when I was younger. But um, astrology is, is a map. Astrology can help you live more consciously. Like uh, your, your chart might say, and I, I suspect this would be true of the two of you, that uh, you will find yourself by immersing yourself in cross-cultural experience. That might be symbolized, for example, by strong ninth house or Sagittarian themes. So your chart tells you that, and it's true. And if you travel and immerse yourself in culture shock and all of that, it opens up, uh, I, I love Leonard Cohen's line, uh, cracks where the light gets in, you know, in, in, in your head, so to speak. And that's the best advice in the world if you have a chart like that. And that's, that's the map. Here's the map. And you can sit there and and never leave London or wherever, you know, for the rest of your life thinking, uh, yes, I'm an expert astrologer. Yeah, but the map is not the territory. You know, you've got to get out on the road or you've got to meditate or you've got to explore your creativity or you've got to try to stay in a relationship for more than six weeks. You know, there, there's each chart will describe a particular path and then you've got to follow the path. The flaw of astrology is there are people who are just uh, expert map readers, but never do much more with it. Good advice can go in one ear and out the other. So birth chart is uh, kind of the, maybe one of the most familiar things people have with astrology, the idea that they have a birth chart, they have a sun sign, and um, it gets much, much deeper than that. But the the pop level, if you will, right, is a, a kind of a sun sign. I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about how you work with a person's birth chart, like start at the ground level of a person gives you certain information. And from there, you build this map that you're describing. How does that go? All I need minimally is uh, the date, the time, clock time, and the place of a person's birth. Uh, if that's all I have, I, I can do helpful astrological work. Um, some people prefer it that way. I, even nowadays, I, I think some people will approach me with an attitude of, uh, and I've heard good things about your work, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe you, maybe you're a charlatan. You know, nobody says that to me. But uh, you know, maybe you pump me for information, and then then you feed that information back to me. You know, which is a a, a classic scoundrel method of practicing astrology. So I always offer people the option of uh, not telling me anything except the date, the time, and the place of their birth. And I say, it's going to be a little more abstract. I don't know your sexual orientation. I don't know if you're in a wheelchair or you're a mountain climber. You know, I can't see that kind of stuff, you know, from a, from a chart. So it will be a little bit more abstract, but it'll be very pure astrology. And uh, uh, probably 20% of my clients prefer it that way. Uh, the rest, uh, you know, will we'll fill me in. Sometimes they fill me in a little bit too much. I, I often say 100 words or less, just, just give me some something of the shape of your life. And, and uh, people will send 
autobiographies sometimes. And, and it's like, I, I don't need the deep stuff from you. I'm going to get the deep stuff from the chart. What I need is, is just, you know, the basic structure or shape of your life, what you're faced with. Do you have kids? You know, what, what profession are you in? If any, you know, just elemental pieces like that. So I, a lot of it is, so I know what pronouns to use, you know, for a person. And I'm, I've always been so curious why that moment of birth, what's the mechanism behind, you know, not conception, for instance, but specifically that moment of birth, you know, is, is it something to do with breathing and an elemental shift from the water environment to a, an air environment? Is it elect, electrical charge from breathing that first breath? Like, what is it about that first moment that imprints this thing that is so rich with information about that person? Yeah, I'm going to... Uh... I'm give you, going to give you what I think is a good answer, and then I'm going to contradict it. So this, this response will come in, in, in two parts. You know, life is complicated, but uh, phys- physical birth, I think you're, you're on target with, uh, you know, leaving the water environment, the amniotic fluid. So basically, uh, here's a pregnant lady. And, and here's the Zen Buddha's question. Uh, is this one person or two people? <laughs> uh, obviously, one, one can make a case e- either way, because the, the baby is, uh, embryonic child is physically part of the mother. And uh, of course, in the saline solution of the, the, the amniotic fluid, uh, so this is a place where things could could grow very complicated. Let, let me let me take a stab at it. The solar system uh, is a magnetic field. The sun is a magnetic field. The planets have fields, and they're moving through it. So the magnetic field is constantly in a state of flux. Earth has a magnetic field. Magnetic fields react to each other. So the Earth's magnetic field is constantly imprinted by the larger magnetic field of the solar system. Jupiter is over here, Jupiter is over there, you know, and such. So we have these two shifting, constantly shifting fields. Now, you are a magnetic field with a a one pole mostly centered in the brain, like in your third eye, one at the base of your skull and, and, and the whole body as you know, through the neurons, magnetic field, the baby, the embryonic child is part of the mother's magnetic field, uh, electricity, electromagnetism being conducted into the child through the saline solution of the amniotic fluid. Then the baby is born, the water breaks, and suddenly there's a, 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 a marked kind of crisis in terms of the relationship with the larger energy field, plus the child for the first time is exposed independently to that that field. And, and thus this crisis of birth, this sudden shift of our energetic relationship to the cosmos seems to be the physical answer. Now, what I've just said is all based on facts, whether the conclusion is accurate, and that's why astrology works, who knows, you know, it, but it's, it's sort of a, a plausible explanation that that's my answer. Now, here's my contradiction to the answer, which makes this a lot more fun. So uh, there are financial astrologers who have made a lot of money for themselves and other people 
making predictions about the profitability of companies in the first quarter of 2023, for example, based upon the birth charts of the companies. Usually it's a publicly traded company here in the US, uh, Monday morning, 9.30 a.m., New York Stock Exchange. The company takes its first breath, you know, when it, the, the, the initial public offering. And, and these charts work, you know, people made objectively tons of, of money doing this. Where's the body? You know, it's it's just like this social construct. We agree that this corporation now exists and and the chart works as well as your chart, you know. So uh, any physical explanation for astrology may contain truth, but it's not a full explanation of why astrology works, which I believe swings us a lot closer into the realm of synchronicity and what used to be called magic and will be called magic again, I suspect. Stephen, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm particularly interested in uh, the first part of your exploration there around the electromagnetic field. And here at Field Dynamics, we deal with healing and what we refer to as subtle anatomy. So the aura, if you will, or the electromagnetic field. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this relationship between the psyche and the mapping of a person's psycho-emotional content, if you will, that relationship of these patterns within a person's birth chart on an energy field anatomy level, do you consider one's astrological imprint to be mapped onto their aura or their electromagnetic field in a particular way? I'd love to hear more your thoughts on that. Yeah, this this gets into extremely deep territory, needless to say, which I love. Thanks for the question. So here's how I'd like to enter it. Uh, the entire theory of astrology was articulated in four words many thousands of years ago by a quasi-mythical figure called Hermes Trismegistus in ancient Egypt. And he said, as above, so below. And there it is. You know that the the, the, the practical, immediate practical application is that uh, the structure of the solar system and the structure of the human mind are like two mirrors facing each other. As we understand the laws of one, we can understand the laws that govern the other, that a structure on a macro level is replicated on a micro level. That's one expression of, of this idea of as above, so below. But it really brings us into a, a broader paradigm that stands kind of outside the realm of current, uh, even 21st century science thinking, where, uh, like, let me give you, here's another piece of the puzzle, like exhibit B. Uh, Snowflakes. We, you know, snowflakes are, of course, very beautiful. Everybody likes to see a snowflake. Each snoflake is different. You know, the snowflakes each have their own personality. It's true, but but each snowflake is like uh, an asterisk. It has six arms. Then you might count those six arms, but to know where there's an arm, there has to be a negative space on either side of it. And, and so a snowflake is like a positive, negative, positive, negative, and 12 things. A snowflake is like a birth chart. A snowflake is a birth chart blank. There's that 12. And then uh, 
uh, I'll, I'll, I'll risk an X rating here. If you uh, stand up and hold your feet apart and spread your arms wide and you've got your two arms and two legs and your head and your genitals, you know, there's there's six arms, so to speak, you know, they're not all the same, but neither are they the same on snowflakes, but six arms, our physical body is structured according to the same law that snowflakes are structured by. And then we have the 12 notes of the, of the diatonic scale, 12 again. And then we have the classic color wheel, you know, starting out with the three primaries and double them. And then you get up to 12. Artists use it all the time. And so there we have sound, we have color, we have snowflakes, we have the physical body, we have astrology, the same structure echoing down the layers and levels of the cosmos, the, the carbon atom, you know, with its 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 six protons in it. And 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 so this uh, this idea of a, a kind of massive resonance of simple archetypal forms throughout the structure of the cosmos is pretty fundamental to historic thinking, but not very commonly found in modern science. Uh, but I suspect it has a big future because it's true. You mentioned the a company having a chart and that reading a company's chart is actually reliably valuable, you know, that it's, it's predictive. What about uh, the collective? What about collective astrology? How would you create or generate and then read a chart for humanity as a whole? And uh, if so, have, have you done this at all? What's, what's taking place right now? What's going on in, the, in a collective astrological chart? If I just stretch the question into another section that may or may not exist. In some ways, I think you've just described a, a holy grail, but I'm, I'm not too optimistic about ever reaching it, you know, uh, the chart of humanity. It, it's possible that, uh, like, if, uh, if I had your chart and uh, I compared it to my chart, I could create something called a composite chart like a point halfway between your son and my son is our composite son and so on around the circle. And there's a chart that would describe the entity of our friendship, the composite chart. It's a basic working tool among astrologers. Um, it gets a little more complicated when you think of uh, three people or a family, uh, even thinking of a family chart. Well, Uncle Joe, is he part of the family? Well, nobody's seen him for 17 years, but he is my mother's sister, your brother, or what I, you know. And, and so, you know, it, if he's in the chart, it's going to look one way. If he's not, it's going to look a different way. How many babies have been born since we started this conversation? When you think of the composite chart of all humanity, uh, I think it exists, but it's constantly shifting, microsecond by microsecond by microsecond. And, and for obvious practical reasons, nobody has the slightest idea what it looks like you know, with 8 billion of us on the planet now. And then do we count our cats? My, I, I'm closer to my cat than I am to my mother, actually, you know, so, I mean, and seriously, I mean, I'm smiling and you're smiling too, and I don't blame you, but, but that's a serious question, you know, where, how, how, how human-centric do we want to be with the chart of life on earth? So it becomes a giant mess and it's impossible, it's fun to talk about, but nobody pays attention to it. So what we do 
in terms of uh, becoming practical with uh, with your question is we we look at uh, at events that are happening in the sky that impact everybody uh, like like for example uh, we we have uh, well you know humanity's been through kind of a rough patch you know for the last while as we we, we all recognize and uh, middle of uh, the last decade we had Uranus, Lord of Earthquakes and Lightning Bolts, squared with Pluto, the Lord of the Underworld, the God of Hell, a tense aspect. And so there's a lot of conflict. And then and then when that broke up, Pluto moved into a square to a newly discovered planet, uh, you know, out of the edges of the solar system called Eris. And Eris uh, is a big subject, but deals with a lot of competitiveness and the elder elder sister of Mars and the mythologies. And, and uh, so we have, we have a lot of tension in the sky now, just simply astrological tension in the sky. And that is reflected in the, the tensions on the earth. So uh, it's called mundane astrology. And that's how we get at what's going on for humanity as a whole. Thanks, Stephen. We're getting into some quite deep territory quite quickly here, which I uh, I know Keith and I will really appreciate because that's why we enjoy doing the work in the in the depths. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit for the for the sake of our listeners who may be new to you and your work, because I think uh, this question will help inform your 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 viewpoints a little bit um, for for their sake. You're considered a founder of evolutionary astrology. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's distinctive about that approach compared to other forms? and how you came about this particular way of viewing a person's chart. Yeah, sure. One of my favorite questions, of course. Um, Well, evolutionary astrology, essentially, what distinguishes it philosophically from the other forms is we, we take the idea of reincarnation and past lives very seriously. Uh, And we have derived methods for discerning the fingerprint of unresolved issues from prior lifetimes in the present chart. And as we we explore those things, uh, uh, well, there have been those who've, who've criticized evolutionary astrology with what initially seems like a, like a fair statement. And that would be, well, you know, past lives, really, you could say anything you wanted. I mean, you were a pizza waitress in Nottingham, you know, and run over by a, a bus, you know, uh, and, and, you know, how could, how could you prove yourself right? How could anybody prove you wrong? You know, so, it, you know, and that, that's, that's obviously valid, you know, that, that criticism is valid. Here's our defense against it. What we discern in evolutionary astrology is not just a guided tour of all your prior lifetimes, but karma that has ripened sort of a Buddhist term or Buddhist concept, but when karma ripens, it will manifest in the present life. And that is testable, that we look at the unresolved karmic story, and then we we anticipate that we will see the fingerprints of that story, often the literal reproduction of that story in the present life. It's like the soul is saying, this hurt me, or I got this wrong in a prior life, so I reincarnate a universe, set it up again for me. I want another look at it. Give me another shot at at 
an abusive relationship or uh, a pointless career or whatever it might be. And maybe, uh, maybe I can do better this time. And so that element of evolutionary astrology is totally testable and it passes the test every time, which is one reason it's gotten so exciting and you know people are so drawn to it. What I what I love about it is the way it it integrates ancient metaphysics with modern, rather hard-hitting psychological thinking. You know, here are your issues, you know, in your face. And here's hope. Here's what you look like when you resolve the issues. Here's where to put your foot next on the path of resolving these issues. And so that's what makes it so exciting. There's a major role that Pluto has to play in evolutionary astrology, if I understand that correctly. And I was wondering if you would clarify what the role of Pluto is or what the um, the more, let's say, mechanical components as to how it is you're reading the soul's evolution or the soul's movement in previous lives uh, in relation to the chart? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. It gets into a, a territory I, I always love to have the opportunity to clarify. Um, so 20 years ago, uh, I, I was working with uh, uh, another early evolutionary astrologer, a man named uh, Jeffrey Wolf Green, and uh, his his approach, his approach and my approach were almost identical philosophically, but they were very different technically. And in in his approach, well, his 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 school is called Pluto School, which you know kind of says it all. In in his system, Pluto represents your soul. In my system, it doesn't. You know, I take Pluto seriously, but I'm not going to go so far as saying it's your soul. Uh, the soul is some synthesis of of all the symbols and something greater behind them, in my view. In, in my system, Pluto, Lord of the Underworld, it's kind of the shamanic planet as we do a journey into the dark. And, and if we're successful, we come out stronger. Uh, ask anyone who survived psychotherapy, you know, they, they've made an A in Pluto, as far as I'm concerned. So Jeff and I had a, a, a moment of uh, not exactly disagreement, but discussion about whether we could work together. And this issue, he says Pluto's the soul. I say, no, it, it's the wound. And then and, and a moment that I'll always remember, Jeff said, under the patriarchy, all the souls are wounded. And I said, you're right. We can work together. <laughs> you know, that was an, enough of a point of contact in our in our, our approaches that that we were able to actually write a couple of books together. That's a fantastic connection point, Stephen. I'm intrigued from what, what you were sharing before about how you weight the importance of a person's past conditioning in your system between, say, ancestral conditioning, past life conditioning, um, and, and a person's conditioning in this lifetime. Do they have equal importance or weight in a soul's evolution as you see it? You know, I know this this connects deeply to the idea of various forms of karma. Yes, yes. The uh, it, it, as I, I I frame my answer, my response, I I'm sort of harking back to this idea of uh, cascading resonances. You know, as above, so below that I was talking about earlier. That uh, l let's hypothesize that in a prior lifetime you were. Uh, 
tortured to death by the Holy Inquisition, you know, in order to turn you into a better Christian, you know, Torquemada the Inquisitor got you, you know, uh, cartoonish, unless you happen to be on the wreck, of course. And there were lots of people who, who had that experience, you know, of religion forced upon them violently. It creates a karmic wound. If it's time to resolve that wound, you may very well find yourself born into a family in which your father, your mother, your parents are, are, are religious fanatics and, and shaming you. And, you know, Eve gave Adam the apple, so you'll never be any good, you know, if you happen to be female. And, and in other words, we're, we're, we're getting this sense of the fingerprint of the unresolved karma on the, the childhood. And, and so I, I smile at what I'm about to say. It's gotten me in trouble a few times, which I always enjoy. Uh, it, it's that the, the success of what I like to think of as 20th century psychology is, is based on, on the fact that whether the therapists knew it or not, they are typically treating prior life woundedness because they see a clone of the prior life woundedness in the childhood. Now, our, our, our psychological wounds are, of course, based on stories and facts and, and so on, but, but they're actually stored in us as uh, emotional states. You know, that, that's the nature of the wound. And, and so if you deal with your childhood trauma of being raised by oppressively fundamentalist judging parents, for example, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, you've just dealt with the fact that you were tortured by the Holy Inquisition in, in 1492 or, or whenever it, it happened. So we have the idea of a, like a sine wave constantly repeating. And if you flatten it at one point, you flatten the whole thing. I'm curious, what do you hold to be the incarnative unit? So if the body dies, what is it that's reincarnating? How does that information go from lifetime to lifetime? Yes, wow. You, you make a good Buddhist. <laughs> it's, that's one of, the, uh, one of the most fundamental questions in, in Buddhism. Uh, what reincarnates, you know, just two words. And, and uh, you know, it's baffled the sages for so long. Um, I, I'm a Westerner, so I, I still use the English word soul when I'm working with people. Uh, some, some Buddhists will say, well, there is no soul. The idea of that separation is an illusion. And, and they'll often say, uh, instead of soul, they'll say the mind stream. And I'm inclined to say, all right, we'll call the soul the mind stream. You know, it it it's it just it feels a little too uh, wordy and academic for me. But mind mind stream is probably a, a good term to use to enter this. That that if we do assume that there's an ultimate uh, illusion built into the idea that we are separate beings, separate from the universe, separate from each other. I do accept that, but that illusion is persistent and profound, and the mind stream is, is very conditioned by it. So there's a part of me that believes in, in the, the I or the me, and, and that, that illusion has been reinforced for who knows how many thousands or even millions of years. And along with that fundamental illusion, um, every experience uh, I've had or you've had 
in other bodies and other times impacts the texture of the mind stream. And so if I'm constantly conditioned by fear or rage, you know, those become part of the mind stream and that reincarnates those illusions along with the illusion of separateness. If I'm conditioned by love and, and faith and generosity of spirit, you know, that begins to sink in. And of course, love and faith and generosity of spirit are more corrosive relative to the illusion that I'm separate because in love and generosity, I am open to other beings. And so gradually, this mind stream is evolving and opening based on the conditioning that derives from its experience. I mean, this is deep waters, but let me take it one step further with a plug for evolutionary astrology. And, 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 and that is that... Uh, it's like we have the question for you in, in the particular predicament in which your mind stream finds itself in this incarnation. What kind of experiences would most efficiently jog you loose from the illusions that are binding you? You know, is it a relationship? Is it meaningful work? Is it meditation? Is it creativity? Is it is it standing up for yourself? You know, you name the human possibility, but whatever it is, your chart tells you where to put your foot next in life. You know, what what is the the most skillful method you in your individual predicament could use? This is where astrology is so much more personal. Than, than a religion. You know, you go to a church or a temple or something, and it, it, it can be helpful. I don't mean to be negative about that, but it's uh, generic. You know, the congregation is exhorted to behave in a certain way or uh, love or whatever, but you, astrology is personal, and, and that's the key. How do, we, how do we use this incarnation as efficiently as possible? I really appreciate that. And I know Keith does as well. It's what you're saying here is in its best form. Um, our relationship to astrology, it's not fatalistic in any way. Instead, it's a relationship of change, of growth, of healing. Can you, bearing in mind that personal message you just noted, would you mind telling us a little about your own astrological chart or how having a relationship to it over these years has informed your own personal life journey? Yeah, so absolutely. Again, a big subject, you know, uh, I mean, I'm almost 74, so the story is getting kind of long, but <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to find out who done it fairly soon <laughs> in the novel of my life, you know, but, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn, and uh, with Jupiter and Mercury in Capricorn, as well as the sun, and uh, Saturn, the ruler of Capricorn, in another earth sign called Virgo, right on my midheaven, which is kind of the house of mission. So uh, I can't say everything you need to know about me is about Capricorn, but that, that's, that's a lot of it. Um, and Capricorn is the sign of the great work, you know, whatever it might be. A lot of people confuse Capricorn with career as if Career is the only place where you can have a great work. Well, somebody might raise a family under very difficult circumstances, and I'd honor that as great work. Somebody might learn 
how to how to play Chopin etudes on the piano, you know, and never make any money doing it, you know, that's a great work too. Uh, that Saturn on the Midheaven, though, that's career. And so I, I came into the world with a very strong sense of mission. Uh, I was, uh, people say, how long have you been doing astrology? And I'll sometimes they'll think I'm being facetious and I'll say about 4,000 years. <laughs> that always gets a big laugh. I'm the only one who's just smiling. You know, I think it's probably pretty close to true. As I right in the beginning, I mentioned looking through telescopes and being drawn to astrology, even though it was not part of my cultural background at all. And, uh, you know, uh, most of my friends have been through ups and downs and confusion about their career. Some people turn 50. They've never found, you know, what's meaningful for them to do in their lives. And, and uh, I've just been on a, on a beeline with this since I was a, a little boy. Never any any kind of career crisis. I, I I went to college and I was majoring in in economics for a little while. Second house Capricorn house of money and traditional astrology, and I was doing all right with it. But it was I, I remember a class about natural gas delivery systems, and I you know I'm like 19, and I said this is as happy as I'm ever going to be in this life. I guess studying economics, you know. So I I, I switched my major to religion, <laughs> pretty much that same day, which was about as near as you could come in those days to studying astrology, and I'm, I'm glad re studying religion taught me quite a lot. Uh, that's relevant to astrology. But you know, basically, I, I've just never let go of, of, of this work. It's, uh, you know, it's been uh, never, never a moment of career crisis or career doubt, you know, just Capricorn sense of mission. And did you have like, um, you said you were into astronomy and, and in some ways continuing this work throughout your life, throughout your youth. But was there a moment where there was that transition to astrology from astronomy or where astrology became the focus at a young age like often I feel like people have moments or they have influences role models or experiences that something really sticks something just turns on fully is there is there something that stands out to you in your journey yeah one one turning point for uh, astrology in particular I was uh I guess 17 or 18 years old last year of high school, and uh, I'd had my, my tonsils out. Yeah, I kind of kept them a little longer than kids did in those days. And and uh, so it was nothing too serious, but a couple of weeks of recovery, you know, from the operation. And my mother uh, came in and asked me if she could get me a book, you know, I could read. And uh, I asked for an astrology book. I, I, I'd never had one before. I knew a little bit about astrology, but but I, I started to get interested in it. And she got me a, a book, uh, Write Your Own Horoscope, by a man named Joseph Gudovich. And it, it was pretty traditional fortune-telling stuff. But but he went through, like, uh, not just your sun signs, but what if your Mercury is in Aquarius? What if your Jupiter is in in, in Virgo? And, uh, and it, it kind of got me aware of the the basics of how astrology worked and and that that moment in uh November 1966 as i recall was uh kind of the the turning point in my life where where astrology kind of lit up in me i i'd have to 
I've mentioned looking through telescopes in the sense of magic. To make the story complete, I, I need to add one more piece. It's, it's a quick one, but it's critical. When I was 13 years old, I met a person I perceived as a woman. I think she was probably 16 years old, and she was from Germany. My family was on vacation in up, up, upper New York State, and she taught me palmistry. You know, the, and you have a plane of Venus and a plane of Jupiter. And the intellectual organization of palmistry is the same as the intellectual organization of astrology. Cascading resonances, your hand also has your chart and has the model of the solar system in it. So I was uh, at the age of 13, I, I became conversant in the language of Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn and so on, but I was doing it through palmistry. So palmistry, astronomy came together with my tonsils out and the rest is history. <laughs> what a great sentence. <laughs> you've mentioned, Stephen, you feel that we're um, you know close to a paradigm shift or at the precipice of a, of a change. Um, certainly let's hope so. In your opinion, what will it take for astrology to be accepted by, by mainstream science at this point? What, what needs to happen? At one level, it's happening. It's, it's been one of the more gratifying things uh, about my life. It's, uh, you know, get, getting older has its miseries, but it has its joys too. And one of them is just watching the explosive uh, improvement in the level of acceptance of astrology in the culture. Uh, I, I have the, the feeling that among people in their 20s, there are probably more who believe in astrology than disbelieve in it. You know, that's that's my impression. When, when I was young, uh, various polls had various answers, but it's like 15 or 20 percent of the population believed in astrology. It, it's way up. You know, we're we're winning the battle for hearts and minds, you know, and I, I think a lot of that is uh, sort of uh, one one astrological consultation at a time, you know, as people experience the full power of astrology and and realize, you know, this stuff is real. I, I, I can't deny it. And they tell their friends. And so we are winning. The specifics of your, your question you know, about getting the scientists to accept it, they seem to be the hardest ones to reach, you know. You know, facts they don't want to see. I shouldn't say that. I should say questions they don't want to ask. I, I, I think that's probably a little bit closer to the heart of, of the matter. But even there, uh, well, there's a quote. I wish I could get it right. It's right in, uh, one of the old quantum mechanics guys, uh, I forget who it might have been Heisenberg, said that uh, uh, a scientific theory does not become accepted because reason convinces people to accept it. It becomes accepted because the people who defended the old theory gradually die off and the younger ones are the only ones left. <laughs> it's pr pretty close to the exact quote. And and I, I believe that's happening even in, in science world. You know, there, there's some 16-year-old who, who, who gets an astrological reading online and e even that, and they realize that something and and 15 years later they've got their doctorate in physics you know and and they they still have that experience of astrology inside them and their professors are now dead hallelujah <laughs> um you've you've probably read a few people's charts in, in your in your time um, i'm wondering um 
what's what's an example of you know like from a practitioner's story standpoint what's an example of reading somebody's chart and having that be transformative for them something that stands out to you where that information the interaction you had with them and the map that you helped to illuminate for that person was able to make a difference in their life um you know whether it be through synchronicity or insight be through direction or just um the absurdity whatever whatever comes to mind <laughs> instantly a favorite story a bunch of them leap up but the, this one is one one of my favorites because there's of all the things you might ever do as a counselor uh having a positive impact upon the life of a, of a young person is right near the top of the list you know a, a reading when you're 80 can help you understand your life retrospectively a good reading when you're 20 you know can help you plan your life meaningfully and, and so um a word about the planet jupiter classically it's just the lucky planet but in my system the question you would ask is how have i been underestimating myself or how have i settled for too little like if you want to get lucky, in quotes, that's the question you need to ask. Young woman, I'd done a, a birth chart reading for her. She saved her babysitting money. She was a little younger than most of the people I've wanted to work with, probably 16 years old, child of some friends. And so I agreed to see her. And we got along great. She saved her babysitting money again. I was cheaper in those days, too. This is kind of an old story. And uh, she came for a current events reading transits progressions now she's uh entering her senior year of high school you know about that age and so I, I see a big jupiter thing going on and i say so college and uh she said yeah she's going to go to college and I'm, we're living in north carolina in those days and and uh i said where are you going to go and she names a couple of kind of modest colleges in north carolina and I, I just looked at her incredulously and I said, not Harvard? You know, I'm thinking of, of Jupiter, you know, how have you been underestimating yourself? And she looks at me, you know, wide-eyed like I'd just suggested she fly away to Tahiti with Brad Pitt or something like that, you know. <laughs> but and I explained to her, this is Harvard, it doesn't matter. But, you know, right now, uh, don't underestimate yourself, you know. If you want to get lucky under Jupiter's rays, you got to think big. You know, if you get into these dinky schools if you want to, but you know, why settle for that? So and she understood. And uh, she didn't apply to Harvard, but she applied to uh, Brown University, one of the more serious major universities in, in the US. And, and she got in, you know, obviously I wouldn't be telling this story <laughs> if that weren't true, but there are some Jupiter details that, that uh, you know, her family uh, lived kind of modestly, getting their daughter to college was going to be expensive. And Brown University was more expensive, but Brown University loved her so much that the deal they gave her, the scholarships, the work-study stuff, actually made it cheaper for her to go to Brown than to go to one of the more local colleges. And it's just so Jupiter, you know, that the, the uh, she, she stopped underestimating herself and that triggered this, uh, this explosion of good fortune in her life. And she graduated from Brown and, and, and uh, her, her life got off on a really good foot. You know, she's, I guess in her forties now and professional and all that.
So made a difference in a kid's life, you know, it doesn't get better than that. In a continuation of that theme, to the seeker and the skeptic alike, what would you say in a, in a few words, in a few sentences, is astrology at its best, at its finest? It's like having a, a really wise friend who believes in you and respects you and tells you the truth whether or not you want to hear it. Just wondering, um, what are you working on these days uh, in terms of uh, ambitions, upcoming projects, and maybe you could tell us about the offerings that you currently have. Right now, um, my life, COVID, you know, changed everything. And uh, I, I used to travel a lot around the world to teach, and I'd begun to wind that down, uh, and then COVID wiped it out. Uh, I One of the reasons I was winding it down is I wanted to start a, a, a formal online school which is successful now, uh, Forest Astrology, two R's and Forest dot center, if anybody wants to learn about it. Uh, and, and that's been up and running now for a couple of years. We have nine tutors and I've recorded 250 videos, instructional videos, which kind of explains what I've been doing for the last two or three years <laughs> in that sentence. And then on top of that, uh, a second project, uh, uh, called Leela. Um, it's a cell phone app, basically, that does astrology for people, uh, some birth chart analysis, some current transits uh, analysis. Uh, I've written the text. I, I'm proud of it. You know, it, it's it's a kind of a, a delicate, complicated subject, like the role of pop astrology. And this is, Leela is not pop astrology, but you know, people in, in my field get their noses in the air about sun sign astrology and so on. And I'm the first to say, you know, if it weren't for sun sign astrology, I wouldn't know about astrology. I never would have gotten into the field. You know, it, it established a kind of a, a welcome mat where you could begin to learn. We, we'd be as, as dead as the alchemists, you know, if it weren't for sun sign astrology. Then along came the digital revolution and, and various computerized reports that provided another stepping stone on the way to serious astrology. Uh, Leela is, you know, kind of a, seventh generation out of, out of that, that tradition, uh, making an easy path for the, the few people who ultimately want to learn astrology deeply, uh, learn to work with uh, clients even at, at a professional level. And so that kind of brings me back to the school. But here in, the, in, in, in these elder years, I'm basically thinking in terms of, of legacy and, and, and how to, how to keep, keep the flame burning and keep the welcome mat wide and the, and the door open. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing those uh, links there, Stephen, those domains. I'll just repeat them. So it's forestastrology.center, two hours in forest. And I believe the uh, domain for the app is heylila.com. Yes, the website is kind of dysfunctional right now, but you can go, uh, we're, we're on iPhones, not Androids yet. Androids are going to take a lot of money for, for us to do. You go to Leela Astrology on your iPhone, one word, L-I-L-A, astrology. So that basically wraps up what it is we wanted to go into today. 
Um, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts about how astrology can best empower an individual, because that's what the work is about, right, is is to be a benefit to the person uh, therapeutically. So what would be a parting sentiment around the use of astrology for a person's empowerment? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a question that brings us right to the practical heart of the whole thing. Culture, uh, media in general, social media in particular, put so much pressure on people to have an extremely one-dimensional understanding of what a successful life is, what being cool looks like, you know, I mean, just to go ahead and use use that media language and and astrology above all is a celebration of human diversity you know i'm i'm aware that's a bit of a catchphrase now but but the idea that for different people there are different paths and uh this this it, it's a it's like a counterbalancing force against this cookie cutter pressure that we're all supposed to have a body of a certain shape and political attitudes of a certain tenor and listen to the same music and be influenced by the same influencers and, you know, on and on and on. And astrology says, no, here's a way to put your fingers in your ears about all that and close your eyes and listen to your own soul. Here's a little bit of help and assistance in that. Nobody needs astrology to be themselves. A lot of fine people don't believe in it and don't use it, but astrology can help anyone. I, I often think of it like, like a weather report, you know, it's like, it's going to rain today. Okay. Do you want to bring your umbrella? Maybe you don't feel like it. Well, God bless you. Go out and get wet. You know, there, there's something to be said for that spiritually, but you know, let me inform you, you know, it's going to rain today. You might consider the umbrella and, and astrology really works very much like that. You know, this is a year to be quiet or this is a year to make your bold move. You know, it's like your wise friend. Thank you. That's a really wonderful parting sentiment. And um, I want to just thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today and uh, a really lovely conversation. Thanks. I've enjoyed it a whole lot too. Thanks for the good work you're doing. Thanks, Stephen. Absolute pleasure to connect. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find us at fielddynamicshealing.com.